So by now, at this point in the retreat, you will be seeing, I'm imagining, the range of the heart. That the heart is very multifaceted and fluid and responsive and adaptive to changing conditions and circumstances. There's never static. It's always moving and responding to whatever we meet. And so um, the, these teachings on the Brahma-viharas, the practices of loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, they're examples and perhaps um, primary stations in which the heart moves and resides when it's open. And of course, there are many other stations where the heart is closed, contracted, wounded, bitter, sad, forlorn, lost, helpless, etc. So I'm hoping you get a sense of how the heart shifts and moves and uh, uh, can be nurtured and cultivated as we're doing so patiently here. One of the things that I've been reflecting on, I'm, this talk this evening will be about uh, the practice of compassion. And one of the things that I often reflect on and notice in the, uh, in the net effect of my practice and, and seeing the practice of others is how there's a general movement towards uh, greater kindness and uh, I was just tracking that in my own experience as I was sitting and coming to prepare the talk. Um, There's, I noticed that there's a way that there's more capacity to hold experience with, with warmth and with tenderness. And I see that as a direct output of the practice. Rather than holding experience through the lens of judgment or criticism or high standards or imperfection, which is so easy to do. So, I wanted to speak to compassion tonight because I think it plays such an integral part in our lives and in our practice because of the presence of suffering, because of the innumerable ways that we encounter difficulty and distress and anguish in ourselves, in our lives, in our personal lives, in our body, in our relationships, with our crazy mind, and also in the world. The tremendous suffering that we experience and hear about and are in contact with, um, whether it's the, the macroeconomic conditions, the macro conditions of the economy, 
you know, just in the last few years, seeing the tremendous distress caused as a result of the economic crisis and the huge unemployment and loss of income, loss of people's pensions, and the tremendous instability and insecurity that's unfolded, that's being, you know, it's devastated certain communities. To just the everyday challenges we face in living, in working, making money, raising children, uh, and the instability and certainty of that. You know, the Buddha you know, spoke to the condition of dukkha, and there's no one way to translate dukkha. A lot of these ancient Buddhist words encompass so much of our experience, and dukkha speaks to the uncertainty, the instability, the, uh, the, the unsatisfactory conditions of our lives that, that leave us with some dis-ease. So I uh, was uh, talking to my father yesterday, and um, he said, uh, my um, brother-in-law received one of those calls that you all dread to hear. And the call was that his uh, mother was just given a terminal diagnosis of cancer, multiple cancers. And he had the uh, difficult task of telling all of his family and his brothers that. And I just thought of the the innumerable ways that that happens, those phone calls, uh, those ways that we receive painful, difficult news, friends, family. And I know many of you here, and we've heard many, many stories of you who are carrying very difficult recent losses, a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. And so the practice um, is always, uh, well, life and practice is asking us, how do we respond? To that? How do we meet that? How do we not go under? How do we not sink? I remember I was at a concert last year uh, with Michael Franti, wonderful singer, songwriter, activist. And he told this story of a woman called Tika. And when he was telling it, I couldn't, I thought he was going to, I thought he, at the end he was going to say, This is, I just made this up. But it turns out this is true. So this woman lives in San Francisco, and in the span of a month, uh, she and her husband uh, uh, became parents to a beautiful boy. And, um, and this is during the, um, the, the housing crisis, the housing mess that we're in. And so they lost their home to foreclosure just after they'd had uh, their newborn son. And then uh, Tika, the mother, found out she had breast cancer and uh, was due to have a double mastectomy um, weeks after the birth. And then they went on vacation to marry, which was a very rare thing for the, for the family. And her husband, David, was uh, swept away in a blowhole, in a rogue wave, never to be seen again. And it was just, and it was just at first, I was listening to it. It's like this. This. This is. This can't be true. This. You know, to, to be at the end. The end 
of so much suffering. But it is true, and it happens all over the, you know, everywhere we go. There are stories like that, and we've, we hear stories like that. So our practice, and notice as you're hearing some of these stories, and I'm going to be saying some things that, that, that you know, will, that are difficult to bear. Dukkha is hard to bear. And it's why there's so much emphasis in the practice on uh, the heart, on kindness and compassion, to meet the humanness of our condition. What else are we going to do? We have a choice. We can numb out. We can check out. We can get mad with life and with God or whoever it is you get mad with. doesn't really help. But, you know, we try it anyway. So all these things... You know, and then, and then in our own, in, in our own journey on the path, um, which also isn't that easy, as as as, as you may have noticed, um, we uncover things. You know, as we as we make the unconscious conscious, we start to see all of our stuff, our patterns, our neurosis, the the ways we unconsciously act out, and we think, hope, we think, well, I should know better. You know. I know I'm doing this, and I still do it. And it's, sometimes it's very painful when, when, as self-awareness grows, sometimes it's even more painful for a while because we see all the ways that we're doing things that we know don't make us happy, but we still do it. So there's a tremendous need for compassion, for forgiveness, for our foibles, for our humanness, for the mistakes that we make. There's a, uh, a, um, some writing by Francoise Fenelon where he, he this is written in the 16th century. He says, as light increases, so light as awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. And this sounds like a meditation, doesn't it? You're sitting there and you have the most you know, nasty thoughts and judgments. And you, know, you write somebody off because of the color of their socks, you know, the hat that they're wearing. <laughs> they just don't deserve your attention because you know, who could show up with a coat like that? You know? And you're like, I can't believe I just thought that. Fortunately, you are not your thoughts, so it's okay. You know, it's just thoughts randomly coming and going out of conditions. But it's shocking sometimes when we see the judgments and the meanness and you know, the cruelty that can arise in the mind. We may not act it out, but we can see some shocking things in here. So the path of life requires a tenderness, you know, a sense of forgiveness. Not that we act out these things, but a forgiveness that, we, you know, that we're human. And these things will continue to arise, no doubt. So a story for you about uh, being in the, in the midst of life with, with, a, with a kind, forgiving heart. It's called Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in the basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and the mother told her no. The little girl began to whine and the mother said quietly, now, Monica, we only have five of the, we have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. 
Soon they came to the candy aisle, and again the girl began to shout for candy. When told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. There, there, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll check out. When they got to the checkout stand, of course, the little girl clamored for bubble gum and went into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes, then you can go home and take a nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. So you could replace Monica with your name <laughs> as you walk around, <laughs> spacing out, drifting off to La La Land, judging, or you know, there, 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 it's okay. <laughs> so, so we need that patient hand, that, 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 that hand of kindness. Because this life is challenging. Nobody gets through it easily. It may look easily from, from, an, from, from an outside point of view, but the internal experience is rarely that easy. There's a cartoon I came across here. Uh, uh, there was a note pinned up to the notice board. And it's three, three captions of a story. And the first the caption says, The History of Man. And the second caption is a man thinking... What the hell is happening? And the third caption, the end. <laughs> Sometimes feel like that. What are we doing here? Like walking around with these funny blankets and going slow and, you know, looking. What are we doing? You know, whatever it is that we get into, what are we, it's a miss. It's bizarre. And here we are, you know, signed up for it apparently. <laughs> So, so as I said, the practice asks of us, how do we meet all of these experiences? How do we meet these difficulties, the challenges, the beauty, the joy, the sorrow? And with the, with the combination of mindfulness and metta, we see that we often have more of a choice than we realized that we don't necessarily need to meet it with the same conditioned reaction. So mindfulness gives that space in which to respond rather than react, for instance. So the poet Hafez writes, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Yeah, so practice, we're learning to see what those ingredients are. Oh yeah, when I sit in the dining room and I look at everybody and I compare and judge and feel envy, I feel terrible at the end of that. Oh yeah, that's, that's mixing some ingredients that are going to make me miserable. So our practice, one of our practices is to turn, is to turn into, to move into, to move closer to the difficulty. Often 
we uh, habitually move away, we react, we recoil to difficulty, we space out, we check out, we resist. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, suffering, as the Buddha says, hard to bear, difficult to bear. It's the definition of dukkha. But as we turn towards it, as we feel, as we open to it, it's actually the doorway to the heart opening. Acknowledging the truth of suffering in the moment, feeling it, allowing it, and acknowledging its painfulness is one of the things that that stirs the heart, allows, allows the doorway of the heart to open. So somebody very beautifully in a group said after the passing of her husband, the, the intention that arose out of that experience was she said, I just want to be kind. I just want to be kind. So sometimes when, we, when we're in the most difficult, dark places, the heart responds with a beautiful turning, a beautiful flowering. And that's why there's so much gifts in these dark places. You know, we don't wish them on anybody, we don't enjoy them necessarily, but yet that's often where we do our deepest work, where we transform, because we're up against our own limitations, we're up against what we think is our capacity, and we have to open and it feels excruciating to open. And often we do, and what happens is there's capacity, there's tenderness, there's compassion, there's empathy that can arise. I remember I was on a retreat here um, a long time ago, it was a long retreat, and uh, I had a person that I was been working with in my meta practice uh, for 10 years, a difficult person. Sometimes they stick around those difficult people. Because <laughs> sometimes it takes a while, you know, for the heart to be ready to, to open or to let go or to forgive. And in my case, it took 10 years with this particular person. And something in the, in the, in the meditation just melted. And some, something, some hardness around the heart just, just let go. I think out of the fruit of the practice of, of just coming to that intention again and again. And it was, it was a beautiful thing to see, oh, this, to see how, how the constructs that we make that seem so solid and rigid and we're gonna, we think we're going to have them for a lifetime actually can dissolve. So this is a poem, part of a poem that I wrote uh, not so long ago that speaks a little to this, this turning. It says, your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this, even if the hole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, raw, stripped bare, and it feels like the wind will pierce those empty places that lay open and exposed. But when you surrender to embrace your loneliness, the starved parts of your being, and you touch the void you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, 
even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So we all have the capacity to do that, and you've all been doing that in your own way. Each time you turn into facing the difficulty and the painful aspects of yourself, difficulty with the difficult person or whoever else arises in your mind and your heart. And so slowly we develop a certain sense of resources. You know, we practice here, uh, as we've been saying, not to uh, live here forever and become great meta-meditators on the cushion, which is a great thing to do, but it's really to apply this to have these qualities and capacities accessible and um, available and um, w- you know, within your reach. Yeah? So they can serve you when you're in face-to-face with much more real-life challenges, which we all will face sooner or later. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation till there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So a dear, dear friend of mine had a very uh, painful uh, bike accident, road bike accident, and uh, was in intensive care for a while. Um, and I, 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 th- I thought about this, this piece of writing that I read a lot from Suzuki Roshi, because here he was sitting strapped up in tubes and all the stuff that goes on intensive care. And there's nothing you can do except feel your heart and feel the love and feel compassion and be there, be available. So when I think about compassion, I do think about the, the origin of this practice that the Buddha taught out of compassion. He looked around after his awakening and saw how we live our lives that uh, uh, make our life more miserable by, by, our, by not understanding what brings happiness, what brings peace. And so he walked 100 miles, which I, walked out, which I worked out was sort of like walking to Cape Cod from here. Kind of a long way to go talk to somebody. <laughs> he wasn't texting in those days. <laughs> and uh, to talk, to find his, uh, his friends who he'd been practicing with for years, to deliver the teaching. Because he, he, you know, he, he discovered a way to uh, relieve suffering. And that's the origin of the, of the teachings. Is, is it comes out of that compassionate place. And there's a lovely ex- uh, passage in the text where he's assembled a bunch of his awakened disciples, and he says, Don't just sit around here, go out, go forth for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of many, out of compassion for all beings, go and teach the Dharma, serve, uh, make this teaching available 
so the very nature of this practice uh, comes from compassion, comes from this desire to relieve the suffering of others. And I trust and I hope that your practice uh, has a similar effect, that we practice here somewhat in, in solitude, even though we're in community, and yet the, the aspiration of the practice is to, uh, to take the seeds and the power of this practice to become your own beacon of uh, compassionate activity. So what is compassion? What is this quality? I remember when I used to hear this word a lot, um, I, uh, I didn't used to relate to it much because it felt very... Uh, uh, which is not, wasn't a word that I use in my ordinary experience. It felt highfalutin in a certain way. Um, but when I came to understand that it, it, it simply means to feel the suffering of another, to suffer with, then that made sense. Oh yeah, to feel the suffering of another. I can get that. I know what that is. I know when I'm sufficiently open and present, I can feel, I can sense into, I can be with someone else's pain when I'm not trying to fix them or... Um, analyze them or get rid of the pain uh, out of aversion. The, the Dalai Lama said, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. So one aspect of compassion is empathy, very ordinary empathy, which actually arises out of attention. Attention is the building block for empathy because we can put ourselves into the shoes of another. We can put ourselves into the, we can sense into the experience of another because we know the experience of ourselves. So mindfulness is a beautiful bridge to empathy. So, and I know I hear many uh, reports of you feeling that. You come into the hall and someone's crying, someone looks really upset, and there's just the movement of the heart. We feel, we connect, and we wish that person to be free of suffering in that moment. It's the feeling of concern, of wanting to relieve, wanting to take care of. Yeah, very ordinary, very simple. It's not, not necessarily grand. So those swallows that I talked about that we have at Spirit Rock, um, hanging out by the bathrooms, um, I was walking one night late, as I like to, there. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful countryside, and... Um, we have a couple of great horned owls that like to hang out in the, in, the, um, in the trees sometimes. And one night I saw that it was about midnight and I saw the, the swallows in tremendous distress. And you don't usually see swallows at midnight uh, doing anything except sleeping. And um, the owl was, was, was on the opposite side of the courtyard scoping out the nest and it was freaking out the parents. And I just, just, I just felt for the, the frailty and the fragility of those, of, the, of the, the parent, the parent swallows, you know, just who are afraid for the, the, the lives of their young. So it's this, it's this natural response of caring, wanting to help, wanting to take care of, wanting to relieve the pain in some way. So this is a story that illustrates this. It's kind of an odd story, but makes the point. So 
there was a, a somewhere somebody had organized a contest um, to find the most caring child, uh, which is sort of an <laughs> odd thing. Um, I think children are naturally caring, left to their own devices. Anyhow, um, so the winner was a four-year-old boy, and the story goes, um, uh, he had a neighbor, an elderly gentleman who just lost his wife, and so was very uh, upset. And um, when uh, the young boy was with his mom, he let go of his mom's hand and, and ran up the garden path to sit with this older man and uh, just sat on his lap. And they just hung out for a while. And then he came back to his mother and his mother asked him, so what, what happened? What did you do? And the little boy said, oh, nothing. I just helped him cry. So sometimes it's as simple as that. Very simple. Sometimes we experience compassion as a sadness, as a tenderness. Um, so uh, for me, this often comes up in relationship to uh, feeling the sorrow of what's happening to the planet, what's happening to innumerable species, what's happening to loss of habitat, what's happening to loss of um, ecosystems, and uh, uh, and, and knowing you know, that the scale is so vast and so huge and seemingly unstoppable, a lot of it, and there's just a sense of sadness of, of the loss and the pain of the loss for the species, for the, and, it's, and it's everybody's loss. When we lose a species, it's everybody's loss. And there's just a sadness in the heart that's, um, that's just present. Of course, there's, there's a much more dynamic aspect of compassion which is because compassion is also understood as a verb, which is the, the movement to wanting to relieve and the actual action or engagement to want to find ways to take care, to protect habitat, to protect endangered species, which many people are doing beautiful work. I was just on the Big Sur California coast, and um, I always take great delight. Uh, there's usually big traffic jams when a condor is cited because there's been an amazing restoration program of condors that were almost extinct. Um, same with the, the sea otters there, uh, made a tremendous com- comeback. And they, they used the, the otters, they pulled the, 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 the sea otters from Big Sur to repopulate the whole of Alaska after the decimation of the population of otters in Alaska. So in our practice, I think one of the most useful places to practice is, in terms of developing compassion, is to begin with ourselves. Since, uh, since there's such a strong tendency for most people to, um, to uh, be somewhat hard and harsh and critical and judgmental and pushing and uh, giving ourselves such impossibly high standards in which we are set up to fail, um, to begin to turn that lens towards ourselves and to begin to, uh, just like we're doing with the meta practice, uh, turning towards the places that we're in difficulty and distress and pain and anguish and loneliness and feeling lonely and sad and distressed and to, to bring that tender-heartedness because really that's, you know, where, that's where the transfiguration work happens. 
How do you relate to yourself when you're sitting in the dining room and you're feeling miserable or you're feeling lonely in a room of 100 people or you're feeling like the only person here who can't get what the hell meta practice is about or walking practice or whatever story, whatever mind trip that you, you find yourself in, whatever emotional pain that you're carrying from your life or your relationships or your losses, how do you hold yourselves? How do you relate to that? Do you push it away? Do you reject it? Do you judge it? Or can there be a meeting of that? And this is where the practice of mindfulness and meta come together, where we, where we bring that presence of mind. Well, what is this? Oh, it's sadness. No, it's actually not sadness. It's, it's a sort of a, it's a forlornness. It's a, it's, a, it's a loneliness. It's a loneliness. Oh, it feels like this. And we bring the mindfulness to feel it, to allow the fullness of that feeling to be present, to be felt, to be known, to, to, to flower. And we hold it with some tenderness. Oh, yeah, this is painful. This is sadness. This is the first noble truth. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. Oh, yeah, sadness, loneliness, emptiness. Anybody feel emptiness anytime? Yeah. So and there's lots of really good research being done around the practice of self-compassion that involves simply turning to our pain, to understanding it, to not judge it, to feeling it. You need to remember that the, 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 the quality of compassion arises when we meet our pain with an open heart. That's how it That's how it's felt, that's how it's known. So when you all know this, you've all tasted this. And we forget, we we usually are sort of acting out of our old habits of rejection, dismissing, condemning. And that's just another layer of suffering. As the Buddha said, we, we add suffering onto suffering. And we all have the capacity to do this. Does this sound foreign to you or does this sound like you're something, yeah, right, you know this, right? And we practice this. We practice so when we get those stronger waves that often overwhelm us, it's accessible. One of my favorite cartoons from Gary Larson, the great Dharma teacher, uh, <laughs> is um, he's, uh, he's had a cartoon of hell and um, uh, Satan's coming out of the fiery den and he's shouting, Mom, no, no. And underneath the caption says, um, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's there with a little tray of cookies and milk, a little penny with you know, horns on it. And... and Satan's looking very unhappy. <laughs> you know, so we have that. We have that innate response in us. You know, when, you know, like when we see someone crying or a you know, friend calls us in distress, you know, mostly we're there. You know, there are times when our habits kick in and we want to avoid it or not be there. Or, um, but we can know that in ourselves. And, we, and I, I, I'm always touched when there's some horrific 
disaster, which there seems to be an endless tirade of tsunamis and earthquakes. And, and I'm always touched by the huge outpouring, millions of people and billions of dollars of people's uh, money and time and efforts. And uh, I know many people who went to Haiti and went to you know, all kinds of places to you know, just touch, moved by the incredible suffering that happens and, and the responsiveness to that. So, and just to reiterate that point of um, how important it is that we acknowledge the pain and we turn towards it, that we open to it with some awareness. Oh, suffering is like this, pain is like this, sadness is like this, sorrow is like this. It means hanging out with it and also hanging out with the discomfort of it. And just like with when we get used to seeing all kinds of phenomena come and go in our minds, in awareness, we see the thoughts come and go and feelings come and go, the heart has that similar embracing quality, that it it has that spaciousness to uh, hold and receive everything, no matter how strong the wave, no matter how distressing. That, like that, that, passage from the Buddha, um, which goes, if I can remember it, uh, uh, develop a mind so full of love it resembles space, that no thing can paint it or mar it or discolor it. It's the same, same with our hearts. We develop a heart so full, so spacious, that whatever rises in it we can hold it, we can tolerate it. And of course, as we learn to tolerate these things that move through our own heart, mind, body, then we have a little more capacity when we're with loved ones and friends and family and colleagues and clients and students and or whatever capacity we're in, there's more available, there's less I don't want to be with your pain because I can't deal with my own, so why would I take on yours? Uh, no, there's a sense of uh, willingness because our heart has that spaciousness. So I had a great example of this when I was um, doing a, a three-month retreat here and I'd set a bunch of long retreats with a friend of mine um, who uh, I fondly call my suffering Buddha friend and because she was going through a particularly hard time for a long time. And um, there, was de- there was a degree that I could open to her uh, and there was a degree that I couldn't because there was a way that her pain so mirrored my own, I, I couldn't fully be around it in a certain way. And it was a limitation in my capacity to be a friend in that way. And I, we sat this, this long retreat together and it was a, one of those retreats from hell that you hear about and they are true and <laughs> this one was a long one, it was a three-monther. And it was completely and utterly humbling and um, excruciating and, but it completely ripped my heart open. And, uh, and then at the end of the three-month retreat, I, I, I was very aware how much 
all the barriers that I'd previously had to her had gone because I wasn't afraid of her pain stimulating my own pain because I wasn't afraid of my own pain at that point. I was so in it and I was so sensed into the quality of compassion and, and the strength of that. So it's also useful to reflect on uh, if these qualities are so beautiful, what gets in the way? What are your obstacles? What, what, what are your hindrances to compassion? So the near enemy, as it said, is, is pity. The quality of where we're holding someone's pain, but it's at a distance. Yeah, I feel you're in suffering, but that's, I'm sorry about that. And, you know, we, we, just, we can't really be, we can't let it in, we can't be close to it. I have a friend who, um, uh, she lost her parents when she was young, and she, she, she remembers very viscerally feeling what pity, fe- what, to be, what it feels like to be on the receiving end of it. And she said, it, the pity burnt. It was literally it was a sensation of burning, because there were so many people who couldn't deal with the immensity of her pain of losing both parents at a young age, that uh, she was on the receiving end of a lot of pity. So... But often it's just the way that we're afraid that if we go into pain, we'll be overwhelmed, that we'll be dragged down, that it'll be endless. And often those things aren't actually true. When we hold something at bay, then it usually stays endless because it sort of stays around until we open to it and allow it to flush through and then it moves on. Sometimes, uh, as as Sharon mentioned the other day, we, we feel fatigue. We feel overburdened by the immensity of suffering. That can be a real obstacle too. And, and I'm often advocating people taking media fasts because we're just overloaded with data and information about the intolerable amount of suffering and that often closes the heart down. We become numb and we become immobilized and numbness and immobilization is the last thing the earth needs. So lastly, there's so many different dimensions of compassion. I don't really have much time to go into all of them, but uh, just to speak some to the more dynamic part of uh, compassion, and Gina will probably touch on some of this tomorrow as we will in the closing, about as we take our, as we practice into the world and go back into our lives, to understand this more active quality of compassion. That it's not just a feeling that we experience in meditation, but it really is the impulse, it's the movement, it's the desire, it's an aching almost to want to do something, to relieve, to help, to soothe, to solve the suffering of another, our friends, our community, And so these, this, the, 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 um, the broader intention of the practice is to uh, invite you to explore how do you, how do you, how do you take this practice that's a, that's a very beautiful internal feeling into, into that which wants to relieve, that which wants to help in whatever small way or large. 
Trungpa called it the tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. This compassionate quality is a tender heartedness that has the power to heal the world. And so we'll all do this, we'll do this, and we'll do this in our own ways. In the Buddhist uh, teaching, uh, one of the qualities I love that's spoken to is the quality of bodhicitta, this quality that wishes to relieve the suffering of others, relieve the suffering of life in small or great ways. And so I think it's useful to reflect after a period of practice, to reflect, well, how does my practice relate to the world at large? And is there an impulse? And what, what, if I listen, what, what, what is the movement of the heart? What ways am I already, what ways is, is my practice already contributing in a way, directly and indirectly? Since we are all the world, we are, we are all already transforming the world, through the, through the practice of matter and compassion and kindness. Yeah. Maybe our practice is primarily through example, by modeling how to be kind, how to be forgiving, how to be compassionate. And we have beautiful examples of great leaders and teachers and um, people who have um, uh, done tremendous Work. I, I hosted an evening at Spirit Rock recently, um, where I'm based out in California. Uh, um, a monk, I, I believe his name was Tenzin Gyatso. Um, he wrote a book called The Autobiography of a Tibetan Monk, and he'd been imprisoned by the Chinese authorities for 27 years and under extremely brutal and, uh, and life-threatening and humiliating conditions. And a uh, very beautiful uh, spirit of how someone who um, uh, maintained his practice under those conditions and uh, drew on the, on the practice of compassion as a way to not harden, as a way to not make an enemy, as a way to not be further imprisoned by the injustice of the system. And uh, now and escaped and escaped with all the torture implements that he'd been tortured with for many years. And now uh, raises money, uh, touring, teaching, lecturing, and to uh, bring awareness to the plight of so many of his uh, uh, fellow monks and peoples. Um, and there's innumerable, innumerable stories of, of the ways that we can take this practice, this responsiveness of the heart, to wish to relieve. This is from the great uh, teacher Shanti Deva, who wrote one of the most beautiful uh, treaties on um, the compassionate heart, the Bodhicharya Vatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. The Bodhisattva is someone who dedicates their lives to the welfare and the relieving of suffering. Shanti Deva writes, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And my experience with practice over these years is it really, that, be, that feels more and more true, that the thing that feels most useful and important is the relief of suffering. That ultimately becomes, because we see, we understand of the, the, the profound interconnection. 
we leave our own suffering, we, we relieve our own suffering, we leave others and vice versa. They're not separate. So I want to close with uh, something from Martin Luther King, uh, who was asked uh, shortly before his assassination how people should remember him. And he said, rather than his awards, what he wanted to be remembered for, rather than his awards and where he went to school, people should talk about how he fought peacefully for justice. He goes on to say, I'd like some, somebody to mention that that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for you to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that I did try to feed the hungry. I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. That I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. So let's sit for a moment. beings everywhere develop the heart of compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.